It is our prayer that the Father would take us and save us, even change us, making us to be more like our Savior, that our Father's will might be done in our lives. And having sung that, having prayed that in song, we turn to the Word because it is by Word and Spirit that the Father does that very work in us and among us as a congregation. So we turn to 2 Samuel. We've been making our way through 2 Samuel at this point. We've made our way all the way through chapter 18. David's son Absalom rose up in rebellion against him. Remember what we saw last week in chapter 18 was Absalom's death. Joab killed him. Joab killed him even though David had given clear orders that Absalom was to be spared, Joab killed him anyway. And when David found out, it was grief upon grief. And that's how the chapter ended. Remember the very end of chapter 18, we read, The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And that's how chapter 18 ended. And that's as far as we got last week. That brings us to this week. That brings us to chapter 19. At long last, chapter 19 is the conclusion of this Sad Absalom story, but what we're about to see this morning at the conclusion is that victory doesn't always feel entirely like victory. Sometimes even our triumphs can be complicated. And that's true here in chapter 19 in a number of ways, as we'll see. So listen now to the word of God, 2 Samuel 19, beginning at verse 1. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. 
Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Maenaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? 
I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Kimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him. All the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And that is how chapter 19 draws to a close. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you again for your word. And we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who guides us as we make our way through the word. Who teaches us. Who opens our eyes to behold the wonders that you have for us. And that then becomes our prayer. Spirit of God, open our eyes that we might see the wonders here, that we might see Christ here, who is most wondrous of all. We fix our eyes on him, we pray in his name. Amen. (coughs) Second Samuel, chapter 19. We have been making our way through this sad Absalom story for over a month now. Going all the way back to when Absalom had his revenge against his half-brother Amnon. Even that feels like a while ago, doesn't it? So we've been following the story for a while, and this is the end of it. And from one Sunday to the next, as we've been making our way, we've taken different approaches to the section of Scripture That we've had before us. Sometimes we've taken several chapters at a time and we've noticed sweeping themes. Other times we've slowed down and focused on particular passages. Our chapter this morning, chapter 19, is the last chapter in this Absalom story. And as I was reading over it, thinking over it, and praying over it this past week, I was pondering well, what's a good approach to take this week? to the episode that we've got before us. It's not like there's only 
One that we could take with any passage of Scripture, there are any number of approaches that you might take to unpack it. What struck me as I was reading over this one again, what began to weigh on me as you read this chapter, was this sense of dampened victory, checkered triumph. It's certainly true, David's side has prevailed, and there is real relief in that, right? The Lord's anointed has gained the victory, but this is dampened victory, checkered triumph. There's so much in this one chapter that makes you want to say, yay, we won? Instead of, yes, you're left feeling, yay, we won, I I guess this is good. David's side has prevailed, a rebellious campaign has been put down. That's good, right? So why does this feel hollow? Why does it feel like you just want to go home from the field of battle and lie down and sleep and try to move on and forget that this ever happened? It's a little like when you you see a movie and the good guys win and the movie ends, but there's just something about the way they won. There's something about the way the movie ends. Maybe there's something that you came to realize about the good guys themselves. It turns out they weren't as good as you'd been thinking over the course of the film. The movie ends. Credits begin to roll. Finally, the lights go up and you look around because you're not sure. Do we clap now? What do we do with that? And you, and you make your way out of the theater quietly, uncertainly. Because you're not entirely sure what to make of what you just saw. 2 Samuel 19 feels like that. It's the right outcome. But in some ways it's deflating. Not everything in this chapter feels that way. The episode with Barzillai the Gileadite. That's heartening. But apart from that. There's not much in this chapter that doesn't leave you feeling deflated in some way, even in the aftermath of victory. Beginning with the way it all begins. Look again at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they in battle. And then verse 5, Joab came into the house of the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. And he goes on from there. And he really lets David have it. So this picks up on what we saw last week. David has gotten word that Absalom's been killed. For David, it is a potent mix of grief and guilt. He's practically inconsolable, though he was also told that his side had prevailed. And what Joab says to David here is, is, David, the way you're responding to all of this is wrong. It's just wrong. These men risked their lives for you to defend you. 
to put down the one who rebelled against you and they prevailed for you, but you're responding to all of this in a way that makes them feel ashamed. They're looking at you. Well, they're not looking at you because you're hidden away from them. And they're hearing about how you're responding to this. And you're making them feel like this was pure, unmitigated loss and disaster. It's quite, a, it's quite a charge, it's quite a moment for Joab to have the nerve to say that to David. And apparently, Joab was in the right, at least with respect to the impact that David's conduct was having on his soldiers. Joab wasn't always in the right. We can acknowledge that. Joab himself comes across as a rather checkered figure in this story. But here, this time, in this respect, Joab was in the right. And I say that because of what we're told in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, The victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. And then verse 3 says, The people stole into the city that day as people who steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So you see, it's not just that Joab is making this charge. It's also that the charge is true. Now, we need to be clear about this here. The point is not that David was in the wrong to grieve the death of his son, not at all. So we're not taking away this Sunday with the left hand what we gave last Sunday with the right. What we learned last Sunday is that our our natural human bonds, our family ties, they abide and they abide powerfully. And so, of course, it's natural and right for us to grieve When somebody close to us like that is harmed or taken from us, even if the relationship was complicated, right? That was true last Sunday. It's still true this Sunday. But the point we're making today is that even in grief, even in profound grief, there was a self-awareness and a self-control that David should have exhibited Especially as a king. Especially as a king for whom these men had just fought bravely and risked their lives. And in that, David failed. David was right to grieve. But he was wrong to handle his grief in the way that he did. And Joab had the nerve to say so. And it worked. David came to his senses. David came to a place of self-awareness and self-control and public presence and leadership. And his soldiers saw it and it worked. But we have to say it was a moment of failure on David's part. So, So that's the first thing we can notice here. And then here's a second one. Right on the heels of that one. What else does Joab go on to say? Look at verse 7. Joab, speaking a stern word, verse 7, he says, Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. That's quite a moment as well for Joab to say that. That's Joab saying, David, yes, your army has prevailed on the field of battle, but make no mistake, there's no guarantee that this whole situation won't take a turn for the worse. Even much worse if you don't get your act together. It'll be worse because these people will desert you. And you'll be left alone. 
Think about it. This whole time, ever since way back in 1 Samuel, David's had men who were willing to fight for him. But here, even in the aftermath of victory, Joab is saying there's no guarantee that'll still be the case. David, you could find yourself alone for the very first time. So there's, there's been this victory, but there's this cloud of uncertainty that's hanging over it. So the first was a failure on David's part in the way he handled his grief. The second we've just noticed is that by his failure, David was running the risk of turning victory into defeat. And then we can keep going. Here's a third. Look, look again at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, it says this, All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom he anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So now, on top of everything else, you've got bickering amongst the people of Israel, amongst the tribes over the matter of bringing David back. Apparently some of them are charging others of them with not doing what needs to be done in order to make that happen, in order to bring David back. So this isn't a time of unity. No, they're bickering, they're quarreling. Here's another one. Here's a fourth. Look at verse 13. David says, Say to Amasa, are you not bone... Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. Amasa, who'd been on Absalom's side. So here is a magnanimous gesture, a political gesture, a shrewd gesture on David's part. But think about it. Now on top of everything else, a man who'd been instrumental in helping the, the king to gain the victory, Joab... Joab, in a sense, is rejected. He's replaced. And no wonder. After all, it was Joab who killed Absalom in spite of David's express orders. Typically, after a victory, you want speeches and honors and medals and music for the people who fought, like Star Wars. That's not the case here. That can't be the case here. Two more moments that we'll notice here. Think about this man, Shimei. Remember him? He's the one who cursed David as they were fleeing. And now as they're coming back, Shimei goes to David and says, forgive me. Not surprisingly, Abishai wants to take off his head. For having cursed David in the way he did. But David says no not today. Look at verses 22 and 23. He says shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day. And then verse 23. The king said to Shimei you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. But even here. There's a sense of unfinished business. Even when David says this. There's a certain lack of resolution here. And the reason I say that 
is that if you know where the story goes from here after this, then you know that before he dies, David tells Solomon as king to have Shimei killed and Joab too. This is in 1 Kings chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. But David is giving these final instructions to Solomon in, in anticipation of Solomon becoming king after him. And he says to Solomon, you know, you know the innocent blood that Joab shed. He says, act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. And then he says the same thing about Shimei. He says, Solomon, you know how he cursed me with a grievous curse. He says, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. You will know what you ought to do to him. You shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. That's 1 Kings 2. So here in 2 Samuel 19, in our chapter, when David spares Joab, when David spares Shimei, there's, there's this ominous sense of unfinished business. A lack of resolution hangs over this whole scene like a cloud. Makes it hard to rest and rejoice for that reason. And then one, one more thing we can notice, which is the very end of the chapter. All the tribes except for Judah charge the tribe of Judah with leaving them out in bringing David back. In response, the men of Judah defend themselves. They say, look, David's one of our own. We haven't benefited unduly. The other tribes answer back. Look at verse 43. We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And that's the last word. With that, our movie this morning ends and the credits roll and the lights go up. That's the last word. Not rejoicing, not feasting, not unity among the people, not shalom. Instead, more bickering. More quarreling amongst the people. And the quarrel comes to an end, not because there's this sense of reconciliation and unity, but only because the words of the men of Judah were fiercer which is hardly a, a satisfying and settled and happy ending to this chapter. So in the wake of David's victory, let's review, shall we? Here's what we've got. Failure on David's part. Failure on David's part that runs the risk of turning victory into defeat. Quarreling among the people, rejection of David's leading general, a sense of unfinished business in the cases of Joab and Shimei, and then more quarreling at the end. That's why I say, when you read this chapter or hear it read, what we've got here is dampened victory, checkered triumph. David, David's side has prevailed, but in so many ways this feels hollow, this feels like Yay, we won. 
It's the right outcome. But in so many different ways, it's positively deflating. And at this point, the question becomes, what is our question every Sunday? What do we take from this? Apart from noticing all of this about this particular moment in history, what do we learn from it that we can embrace and apply today? Well, it brings up something that we've noticed before as we've been making our way through First and Second Samuel, even before we turn to First Samuel. First chapter, first verse, that very first Sunday, we took a few Sundays to drive home the idea that this is a history that points forward to Jesus Christ. This whole Samuel, Saul, David storyline, it sets the stage in Bible history for the, the glorious coming and the saving work of Jesus Christ in the world. And it does that. This history accomplishes that in different ways. It does that in positive ways and in negative ways. Positively, on the one hand, when David is glorious in this history. And when his triumphs are thrilling. It points us forward to Christ in that it, it gives us a glimpse, though a pale glimpse. It gives us a true glimpse of what is to come, and it is thrilling and stirring for our soul. But negatively, on the other hand, when David is shameful in this history, or when he's defeated, or when even his triumph is in some ways discouraging, still it points us forward to Christ. Because it shows us that ultimately even David won't do. And there's got to be more. There's got to be another. There's got to be another in the line of David who's perfect. And whose victory is perfectly full and final and satisfying to the soul. And brothers and sisters, that's our Savior. And that's where I want us to run today. Let's run to Christ, Christ who by his death and resurrection gained the victory on our behalf over sin and Satan and hell itself. This story, this dampened victory in 2 Samuel 19, it points us forward to Christ by way of contrast. It points us to Jesus, the son of David, the root of David, because his is a victory that is sweet and satisfying and celebrated in every way. His is a victory that doesn't leave us feeling the way this one does that we've just recounted in 2 Samuel. That's why I wanted to read Revelation 5 for us earlier in, in our service, that glimpse that John is given of heaven above. And they say, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That's in Revelation 5. The root of David has conquered. The one who is the seed of David, the son of David, has gained the victory. And oh, the praise in heaven swells at the thought of the victory that he's gained. And so John hears in heaven, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
That's the song they sing right now. To, to Christ the victor. And it's not just in heaven right now, the world above that we cannot see. It's also in the world to come. It's also in the future. It's also on the last day when Jesus comes back. The Bible points us there as well. Paul in Philippians 2 points us there to that day, Philippians 2, when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at that point, nobody is going to be saying, eh, like Larry David in that Super Bowl commercial. Nah, doesn't do a whole lot for me. At that point, nobody's going to be saying, yeah, that's true, but... followed by qualifications and reservations and objections now. All of those things that we noticed before in this chapter... In 2 Samuel 19, none of them will come true in the case of Christ. There won't be any sense that Christ himself failed in the aftermath of his victory, as David did. There won't be any lingering fear or uncertainty that his victory might become defeat after all because Christ didn't handle it well. There won't be any quarreling and bickering among his people. None of his people who sided with him and fought for him will end up rejected and replaced. And there will be no sense of unfinished business. No sense of unresolved justice in the end. You see, all of those things that we noticed before in 2 Samuel 19 that brought us down In the aftermath of victory, none of them will come true in the case of Christ. No qualifications, no reservations, no blemishes, no just disappointments, just pure, joyful triumph. In heaven right now, and in the world to come, God's people look at Christ, the victor, and they say, yes! Not, yeah, but... Dot, dot, dot. They say yes! Exclamation point. And in that world, we'll say it too. And in this world, already, by faith, by the grace of God, we've begun to say it. Because now we can behold that he is such a conqueror as that, and we are more than conquerors in him. And that truth, the truth of Christ's complete and completely honorable victory, that truth pays off in our lives now. It should. In, in two different ways that I'll mention. The thought that Christ is a victor like that. First of all, it fuels our hope for heaven. This is what's in store for us in the world above and in the world to come. Christian Jesus gained a victory for you. It is your rock-solid hope that you're going to enter into that victory 
Because Christ in his mercy and kindness is going to share it with you. No qualifications, no reservations, no blemishes, no disappointments. Just pure, joyful triumph for you. Christian, that is your hope. So there's that, first of all. It fuels our hope for heaven. And then second of all, following on that, the prospect of that hope for the future makes for consolation in the present. Consolation right here, right now. And we need it. Why? Because our reality in this present evil age, in this cursed world, And we all know this from our own experience. Our reality is that even our victories, even our success stories, are always dampened to some degree, checkered in some ways. And it doesn't make you an Eeyore to recognize that. It just means that you've opened your eyes and you're being realistic. And it's not hard to think of of examples. So, for example, a relationship is repaired. That's a kind of sweet victory, a kind of satisfying triumph. But then, try as you might, you find that you can't help but carry with you the memory of what ruptured the relationship in the first place. And and that lends a certain bitter sweetness to the whole business. Or a project at work reaches a successful conclusion, but along the way, one of your colleagues proved to be less than trustworthy. And and now you're not sure where that leaves your team going forward. Or you get into your dream college, but your best friend, with whom you always shared the dream of going to that same college, is rejected and won't be going there after all. These things happen. Our reality in this age is that even our victories, our success stories, are dampered to some degree, checkered in some ways. Christian, when that happens, when you're reminded in some way, maybe thanks to some development like that, when you're reminded that that's what this life is like, Christian, there is consolation for you. And that consolation is just what we've been saying, which is the truth that Jesus Christ has gained for you a complete and completely honorable victory. And you're going to enter into it because he's going to share it with you. That's what enables you to handle the checkered victories that you experience in this life. Because that is your hope, you don't have to try desperately and unsuccessfully to blind yourself to the blemishes and the disappointments. You don't have to resort to that, which is good, because it it never really works. You're freed up from that. You can open your eyes. And, and acknowledge the things that perhaps slightly tinge with disappointment the victories you've known. And it may not just be slightly. You can acknowledge them and face them, perhaps do something about them. 
all the while knowing that a day is coming when this present evil age will give way to the glorious age of pure triumph for you in Christ. So I say look there. Look to heaven. Look to the world to come. Look to Christ. Rejoice in knowing that great David's greater son has greatly surpassed him. And think about it. Right now, even David rejoices in that. That Revelation 5 chorus that we heard singing before, right now, David's is one of the voices in that chorus. And Christian, one day yours will be too. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the champion, the victor, the conqueror, the triumphant one that you've given us, even Jesus Christ. We read this story today in our Bibles and we go running to him, resting and rejoicing in the thought that the victory that he's gained and he's gained it for us will not leave us deflated, disappointed, in any way, will not leave us with a sense of fear or uncertainty or a lack of resolution in any way. We rejoice in Christ. We boast in him. We pray that you would indeed fix our eyes on him again today. Strengthen our hope for the future. And in that future hope, may we find sweet present consolation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.